it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the February Atoms. This month, we'll be looking at pragmatism. Pragmatism is generally taken to mean practical, a means of operation which is both user and subject-friendly. We're all bound to an extent by pragmatism as this defines the world we inhabit, simultaneously adhering to certain rules or etiquette of engagement and execution. So what defines a pragmatic study? I'd argue that this is a pleasingly flexible term, the common denominator being it is neither unwieldy nor unpalatable and probably inexpensive. By dint of these qualities, a practice becomes sustainable, a feature common to this month's choices. We'll start with global health and acute gastroenteritis. Poletti and colleagues compared detection rates of antibiotic-treatable forms of diarrhoea in children returning from the tropics to France with standard culture and multiplex PCR. Though their numbers were small, detection was not only faster, in other words, results on the same day, but the PCR more sensitive, both in terms of identifying co-infection and illness requiring specific treatment. Though the vast majority of cases of gastroenteritis require only supportive treatment, those with Shigella, symptomatic Campylobacter and cholera do warrant antibiotics. A test capable of diagnosing and treating these children earlier can only be of benefit to both them and their contacts. In contrast, Alita and colleagues assessed a peripartum quality improvement initiative in Papua New Guinea, the aim of which was to minimise antibiotic use in a region with high bacterial drug resistance rates. They adopted a watch-and-wait approach in high-risk babies with prolonged rupture of membranes who'd received a single dose either intrapartum or immediately post-delivery. If well, the babies were discharged after 48 hours observation, with advice. Rates of infection were reassuringly low. Most were simply cutaneous and therefore unlikely to have been related to early rupture of membranes and there were no deaths. Changing tack to illness, chronicity and happiness. An area that continues to intrigue and confound is health-related quality of life in children with congenital heart disease. And Reiner and colleagues' study and Clarsen's editorial adds to the burgeoning literature. They compared QOL scores using the validated Kindle tool in 514 German children with a range of cardiac defects, compared self-reported QOL scores in, with a group of controlled children assessed as part of the norm, normative validation. The mean scores in the cardiac children were both significantly higher, after correction 2.3 points with P of under 0.001, consistently greater by sex and age band, and most interestingly by severity of underlying lesion. The children with congenital heart disease, unlike their healthy peers, retain quality of life through puberty. How do we interpret this? The authors suggest, and the literature source suggests, that social support, family environment, peer and school dynamics, a sense of coherence and early learning of coping strategies might help. They also propose that a feeling of less pressure might in part explain their relatively high scores. Do the differences found mean a clinically important difference? No one really knows, but the direction of effect has to be a positive one. Fabricated illness. In a two-part series on fabricated and or induced illness, 
as well as marking the 40th anniversary of Meadows' first use of the term Munchausen's by proxy, Murta describes a difficult gestation, childhood and adolescence this heterogeneous entity has endured. Nothing better illustrates the sensitivities around the area more than the multiplicity of synonyms. Preferred terms in the US, for example, include paediatric condition falsification or medical child abuse or caregiver fabricated illness in a child. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, now uses the term factitious disorder imposed on another, implying that carer behaviour involves deception, though the line between this phenotype and multiple symptomatology due to caregiver anxiety is indeed a fine one. This is a notoriously potholed area, ambiguities resulting in the failure of resolution of many past cases. Resuscitation One of the many additive stresses in a resuscitation situation is the estimation of weight on which to base drug and defibrillation doses and endotracheal tube sizes. Despite the numerous formulae in circulation, children continue to defy attempts to conform. In a pragmatic study to address this, Marlowe et al. used a simulated setting to compare four types of validation. Two forms of the Advanced Paediatric Life System, in other words, APLS calculation, a best guess, and a simple table. The methods were comparable for children over a year in terms of validity, but the table faster, and one assumes easier, to use. There's a historical twist here. Tables fell out of vogue in the 1980s as formulae were somehow felt to be better. Sometimes, however, ease and the removal of additional stress trumps other factors, as it has here. In a similarly practical vein, Pellegrini undertook a small crossover trial in a group of adolescent trainees, comparing the two-finger and two-thumb the chest encircling techniques, to cardiopulmonary resuscitation efficacy. This was defined according to resuscitation standards. Though pain in the hands and wrists was a common complaint with both methods, the two-thumb technique was both more efficacious and preferred. Moderation is everything. In a compelling piece mixing history, physiology and trial data, Martin and Peters examine the potential disadvantages in the over-liberal use of the universal panacea, oxygen. The downsides have been perhaps longer recognised by neonatologists, but the potential damage caused by oxygen-free radicals or reactive oxygen species at mitochondrial level is at the least thought-provoking. The only meta-analysis to date was based on adult studies, but there is some paediatric evidence, for example, that on bronchiolitis, which showed a faster time to discharge if more liberal saturation cutoffs were used, and another, the OxyPICU study, where lower levels of oxygen saturation cutoff were used and shown to be safe. This piece was the subject of a recent podcast, Might Children Rust, and is my editor's choice for the month. Do read this the other editor's choices, listen to the podcast and visit the website on adc.bmj.com. Thanks, as always, for listening. (laughs)